Hey everyone, it's Kevin McMillan at Mile 2 Church and the overview of the New Testament. Thanks for joining us. This is session four, and I hope you were able to look at the first three sessions. The first two just sort of gave an introduction and a bit of a history leading up to the New Testament and how it came to be. And then last week we started looking at the Gospels and sort of give a general overview of the Gospel. And today what we're going to be doing is looking at each of the Gospels individually to see what makes them unique. Why is Matthew a little bit different than Luke, a little different from Mark, and quite different from John? So let's just start with Matthew. Uh, if you want to download the notes, you can uh, follow along, help you see the major points, and uh, also will help you in the future if you want to come back and review some of this material, you can hang on to it as a PDF. So the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, was written by, surprise, Matthew. And we read about this, we read about Matthew in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, where Jesus finds this tax collector and Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. And the tax collector says, me, Lord? Now, let's remember from our second session that tax collectors were not regarded well by Jews. Tax collectors were Jews, but they were almost considered traitors because they worked for the Romans and the Jews hated the Romans. And so when, when Jesus talks about tax collectors, he's often talking in a very derogatory way. So when he called this tax collector, no doubt his disciples went, are you serious? Like this guy's going to be part of us? but he was. And not only was he part of those 12, he wrote the very first gospel here. And Matthew probably wrote it in the late 50s or early 60s. Now, when you read in chapter 9 about this exchange between Jesus and the tax collector, the tax collector is named Levi. This is not, a, a, again, a contradiction. He had two names. He had the name Matthew and he had the name Levi. Many of the disciples had different names. We think of Peter, he was also called Cephas. He was also called Simon. We think of Mark. Mark is also called John, John Mark. And so these different names can be applied. Paul, Saul. And so again, it's not a contradiction. It's just two different names. Now, Matthew was written for a largely Jewish audience. We can see this the way he wrote it, and some of the phraseology he uses, some of the references he makes, some of the focuses uh, of his gospel, and some of his explanations make it obvious that, okay, Jewish people are reading this because Matthew is presupposing some understanding of Jewish customs because Matthew also presents Jesus and the New Testament as entirely the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He ties it so closely to the Old Testament. He talks about Jesus' relationship with Israel and how Jesus is now the Messiah of Israel. He is the royal king, the, the royal Messiah of Israel, tying these things together. Now, you'll find that as you read through the Gospels, you'll see the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, You'll also see the phrase, the kingdom of God. Matthew is the only one who uses the phrase, kingdom of heaven. Now, it's thought that this phrase, kingdom of heaven, originated with the rabbis in rabbinical teaching. And again, if you remember from the first and second sessions, the rabbis came uh, into existence after the Old Testament, before the New Testament. And so, this, this phrase, kingdom of heaven, apparently came uh, to being through the rabbis. And so Matthew uses that phrase because he's talking to a Jewish audience who would have spent their lives listening to rabbis. So he's able to connect with them more that way. Now, in, there are six or seven sections in Matthew that are just the teaching of Jesus. They're just large chunks, chapters, or two or three chapters in a row of simply Jesus' teaching. We call these discourses, where Jesus simply gave the teaching of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so the first one is in chapter 5 to 7. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. So three solid chapters of red letters, if you have a red letter Bible. And then chapters 10, 13, 18, and then 24 and 25 could be considered one, could be considered two when he starts teaching about the last time, the last days, the end of days. So what we see is this regular rhythm of a narrative and a discourse, a narrative and a discourse, a narrative and a discourse. And this is the way Matthew wrote, with this rhythm. So he tells the story, and then we just pause the story, 
well, it's included in the story, but Jesus teaches for quite a while, and then we tell some more story, and then Jesus does some more teaching. This is the flow that Matthew set up, different than the other Gospels. Now, some of the key themes that we read in Matthew that are very particular to Matthew is the bridging of the Old and New Testaments. Now, I don't want to make it sound that the other three Gospels don't talk about this, because of course they do. We understand that the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but Matthew focuses on this in a greater way and in some ways a different way. This also might be why it's the first Gospel. And by the way, ever since these four Gospels started being gathered together, which would have happened late in the first century or early in the second century, soon after John's Gospel was written, these four uh, works of Scripture were considered canonical, they were considered part, excuse me, they were considered authoritative and inspired, and they were all put together as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in that order. So Matthew has always been the first book in the New Testament. And it might be placed there simply because it does tie into the Old Testament so much, so significantly. And if you look at the first chapter of Matthew, what do you see? A genealogy, a long genealogy. This would be perfect to connect with Jewish people because in the Old Testament, genealogies are common. Now, this wasn't simply just to take up space or to tell some dry history, but it's to put people in the context of their ancestors, the context of their faith. So it was very important for them. You know, what family do you come from? Because families were very, very important to them. So Matthew starts with a genealogy. In this way, he's able to connect very well with the Jewish audience. It just helps provide continuity from the Old Testament and sort of cohesion from the Old Testament as well. So bridging the Old and New Testaments is a major theme in Matthew. Another theme is the church. It's first mentioned. Jesus mentions the church in Matthew, and Jesus makes it clear, I am building my church and I will be sustaining my church. Matthew shows that it includes all Israel and all the Gentiles together in one. If you think of the Great Commission, that is at the last, in the very, very end of the Gospel of Matthew, the last chapter, he says, go into all the world and preach the Gospel. And as we'll see in a couple of sessions, It took them a little while to catch on that that was really what they were supposed to do. But it was to include not just the Jewish nation, but it was also to include everyone. Another key theme in Matthew is discipleship. Because we see these great chunks of teaching, like the Sermon on the Mount and then the the other four or five chunks of teaching, these discourses really provide a great manual for Christian living, if you just want to call it that. And really it's the most comprehensive of Jesus' teaching of all the Gospels. So it's, a, it's an excellent book to read in terms of understanding discipleship. So let's look at the Gospel of Mark. This was probably the first Gospel uh, ever written, probably written around 55 AD, somewhere around there, and it was written by John Mark. You can read about him in a few places. One, we see him in Acts chapter 12, uh, where he he joins the disciples and he travels with Paul for a little while, and then he doesn't travel with Paul for a little while, and then we read later on in Timothy where Paul says, please contact John Mark, I'd I'd like to see him again. So he was very much involved in uh, the early church and in the spread of the gospel through the Gentile world. Uh, But this gospel is actually based probably largely on Peter's memories, on Peter's understanding. Again, uh, we're taking for granted that you understand we see these gospels as inspired by the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit works through human vessels. And so their memories, their style, their vocabulary, the way they see things, their viewpoint is going to be reflected in the gospels as well. So this was based, the gospel of of Mark is likely based on Peter's memories because Mark was actually an assistant to Peter for several years when they both lived in Rome. So it's interesting where Matthew was one of the disciples and he was an eyewitness to Jesus and his whole ministry, Mark was not. It's possible Mark was connected, but we don't know that for sure. We know he was connected to the spread of the gospel later on, but he wasn't one of the disciples. So he was relying on Peter's memories. 
And so this gospel actually focuses a little bit more on the events uh, that Peter participates in in the story of Jesus. But what's really interesting is it actually focuses more on the weaknesses of Peter and the words that he used and the actions that he did and the attitudes that he had. So this shows Peter's humility. You would think if he wanted to write more about himself, he'd try to show up, you know, he was a great disciple and he did this and he did this. He ended up saying, yeah, I said this and I shouldn't have and I did that. No, isn't it terrible that I did that? And I denied him three times. So Peter was willing to show, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not Mr. Super Apostle here. And you read that in a greater way in Mark really than in the other ones. Now, Mark was written for a largely Gentile audience, where Matthew wrote for the Jewish audience, Mark wrote for the Gentile audience. This makes sense because he and Peter lived in Rome and they were surrounded by Gentiles. And we can see this in that Mark explained Jewish traditions much more than Matthew did. Matthew just would have said, this is what happened, whereas Mark said, this is what happened and this is why it happened. Here's an example. In Matthew 15, the very beginning, chapter, or chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. That's what Matthew said. Matthew knew that the Jewish audience would understand why the Pharisees would say that. Mark, on the other hand, wanted to explain why did the Pharisees say that? That might not make sense. Didn't have to do with whether their hands were clean. It had nothing to do with that. This is what Mark wrote. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and the, of the Jews and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the, to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things that they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders and eat with unwashed hands? Okay, way bigger explanation. Even though Mark is a shorter book, he goes to the trouble of explaining these tra Jewish traditions so that the Gentile audience would get it. Now, as I mentioned, it's a short book. It's also a very fast-paced book. The word immediately, or something along those lines, right away, occurs over 40 times in 16 chapters. And so it just goes from one scene to another scene to another scene to another scene. It's not even necessarily a lot of continuity between scenes. Immediately this happened, and then immediately this happened, and this happened, and then immediately this happened. As you read it, sometime I encourage you to read through the entire gospel in one sitting, because what you see is it just goes and goes and goes and goes. He tells a lot in a short period of time. Now, Jesus' teaching here is mixed in with the narrative. There are two sections where he teaches quite a bit, two discourses, whereas in Matthew there are, what, four or five or six discourses. Here there are two smaller ones, but his teaching is also interspersed within the narrative. So it presents a different flow of Jesus' ministry at the time. Now, some of the key themes that we read in the Gospel of Mark is discipleship, similar to Matthew little bit of a different focus. Uh, Mark focuses on our relationship with Jesus Christ, and Mark also focuses on the fact that discipleship involves denying ourselves and dying to ourselves. This, this theme comes back over and over and over again in Mark, and that's a crucial part of discipleship. Another theme that we see in Mark is that he is correcting many of the messianic expectations and understandings. You'll remember from our earlier sessions that we said the Jews were looking for a Messiah. They, they were waiting for a Messiah, but many of them were waiting for a political military Messiah, leader. And Mark is very clear to explain, I mean, through Jesus' teaching, that is not who he is. He is not that person, and that person is not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. So Mark is very clear about that. Mark is also very clear that Jesus is a man and the Son of God, combining these two identities in one person, God in human form. And this is a very important theological concept that comes later, actually, in the history of the church. So those are some of the things that Mark focuses on. Let's look at the Gospel of Luke now. Here again, 
uh, it's not named as Luke, but we can understand both from some of the things we read in the text, some of the things that we read in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, it makes it clear that it's Luke, and again, the early church all said, Luke is the guy who wrote this. We know him. We, he, he gave us this work. We get it. Now, like Mark, he was not an eyewitness. He was not one of the disciples. He was not even there, by the sound of it, uh, during Jesus' ministry at all. As a matter of fact, he's not Jewish. He's the only author of the New Testament that was not Jewish. And so he had to gather his information. He had to talk to people to get his information. He couldn't write it from his first-hand experience. But he had lots of experience with the gospel because he traveled with the Apostle Paul all the way through, not all the way through the book of Acts, but often in the book of Acts, you'll see talking, Paul, we and Paul went here. And so he's including himself in these missionary voyages. So he's very involved in the spread of the gospel and the early church. And Paul also refers to him in some of his other letters and lets us know that Luke was a physician. Dr. Luke is the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts. Probably he wrote around 62 AD or so. We, we think he didn't write it before Paul's death. Paul probably died around 64 AD, 63, 64. But when Luke wrote the book of Acts, it ends quite positively with Paul preaching in Rome. He was under house arrest, but Paul was still able to preach and see people, uh, and he was very active in ministry. If Luke knew at that point that Paul had died, probably he would have written it into the book of Acts but it's not there. So the book of Acts and therefore the Gospel of Luke were likely written in the early 60s, maybe late 50s, but early 60s. Now, it's a, uh, I should also say it was written for a specific person. Uh, it was written for a man named Theophilus, and we don't know who Theophilus was. Luke only names him, names him in Luke and names him in Acts, but he doesn't give any explanation as to who he is. But it was probably a man of wealth, of stature, some uh, p political position perhaps, uh, who had commissioned Luke to write this because he wanted to know the truth of the gospel. And so Luke is very careful about finding all the evidence and writing what he knew to be true. And so it also implies a Gentile audience, just like Mark, because Theophilus, Obviously, it doesn't sound like a Jewish name. It sounds like a Greek name. So, the Gospel of Mark is a mix of teaching, miracles, and parables. And in fact, the Gospel of Luke has more parables than any of the other Gospels put into it. And so, Jesus does most of his teaching in Luke through parables. And unlike Matthew, and more similar to Mark, Jesus' teaching is just interspersed throughout the story. So it's more like one long narrative where Jesus takes time to teach here and then he does something and then he teaches here. So we don't see these two or three chapter chunks of teaching in the Gospel of Mark that we do in the Gospel of Matthew. So just a bit of a different flow to it. Some of the key themes we read in Matthew are about God's sovereignty over history to arrange things so that when Jesus came to the earth, it was exactly in the right place at the right time with the right people. Luke gives a great deal of introduction before Jesus is born and quite a detailed introduction of how things were all set up so that he came again in the right place at exactly the right time. Luke also talks a lot about the coming of the Holy Spirit. We'll see this in John as well, but Luke focuses on the Holy Spirit more than Mark, more than Matthew as well. Luke talks a great deal about prayer. Again, this is, it's not that the others don't talk about these things, but Luke emphasizes them a little bit more. And one thing you see over and over again in the Gospel of Luke is the danger of riches. He wasn't saying that riches of themselves are bad or you should not have them. He just said, he just makes it clear they bring with them great danger. And we read that also as well through the uh, letters of Paul as well. So those are some of the, the key themes that we read about in Luke. So looking at the last gospel, the gospel of John, this is the different one. The first three are the synoptic gospels. Now John is just a little bit different. This was written by John, the apostle, one of the 12, one of the sons of, son, sons of thunder, as Jesus called them. And this is the John who also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Revelation. In, in those books, 
he is named, but in this book he is not named, although, again, church tradition ascribes this to him. And again, people would have known him. He lived a long time. Uh, he probably would have been in his late 80s or 90s when he wrote this. It was written, as I mentioned, later in the first century, probably in the 90s, probably around 95 AD. One of the reasons we can uh, uh, understand this is simply something very simple, is John calls what the other disciples call the Sea of Galilee. You know, you, you hear about Jesus in Galilee, this is where he was born, and there was the Sea of Galilee and the fishermen and everything like that. The other disciples called it the Sea of Galilee. The other Gospels call it the Sea of Galilee, whereas John calls it the Sea of Tiberias, because that area was known as Tiberias, named after the leader, Tiberius. But this only happened, this, the, the, this body of water was only called the Sea of Tiberias late in the first century. It was not called that earlier. And so the fact that John called it that is pretty good proof that this would have been later written quite a bit later than the other Gospels. Probably written from Ephesus, that's where John spent a good deal of his time, and the audience that he wrote to was both Jew and Gentile. And like Luke and uh, excuse me, like Mark, he explains some of the Jewish traditions because he knows he's talking to, uh, to Gentiles who may not understand Hebrew words or Hebrew traditions. So he, he goes, like Mark, into some detail in explaining those. Now John has this unique opening, very different than the other Gospels, quite beautiful, uh, sort of mystical in its sounding. If you read it, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know, the other Gospels started with Mary and Joseph, or Elizabeth and Zechariah, or Mark just starts with, this is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus when he's 27 years old. John goes right back to the beginning of everything. And so he gives us this beautiful, huge picture of the appearance of Jesus in the world when he came. Um, the characteristics, we mentioned that Mark is a little, uh, John is different than the other Gospels. Here, here are some of the things that are different. John focuses a great deal on Jesus being sent by God and working with him. In the Gospel of John, over and over and over again, Jesus said, I'm not here to do my will. I only do what I see the Father do. I only say the things I hear the Father say. I'm only here to do his will. It is not me. It is God working through me. Th this is such a prevalent theme in Mark. It's in the other Gospels, but excuse me, John, not Mark, Mark, John. It's a prevalent, prevalent theme in this gospel. John, interestingly, speaks very little of the kingdom, either of heaven or of God, just a different viewpoint. And as I mentioned earlier, there are actually no parables in this gospel, quite a difference from the other gospels, because Jesus did a good deal of his teaching in parables in all three of the other gospels. And John also speaks about eternal life a great deal. Again, it's mentioned in the other Gospels. John focuses on it more. And John is not simply referring to the amount of time, if you can call eternity time. He's also focusing on the quality of life, that this is a connection with God. This is in the presence of God. So he, John gives us this picture of eternal life, this beautiful state that we are all going to be in forever. Some of the key themes of John is Jesus is God. As I quoted a couple of times already, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So John explicitly states Jesus is God. Of course, another theme you can probably identify in the Gospel of John and most of his writing is love. The word love, the Greek word agape, or agapeo, either the verb or the noun, show up in the Gospel of John more almost twice as much as the other three Gospels put together. So it's not obviously that the other Gospels don't think love is an important theme, it's just John focused on it so much more than the others. Jesus presents himself, or John presents Jesus as I am. And the Gospel of John is filled with these I am statements that Jesus made. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am the way. Uh, he said, before Abraham was, I am. All of these show up in the Gospel of John. So this helps just solidify this identity as Jesus, of Jesus as God. 
Uh, John also shows us, makes it clear that Jesus' death is the basis for our salvation. In John chapter 1, verse 29, he is called the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A Jewish audience, <clears throat> excuse me, would understand that right away, referring to the Passover when the Lamb was sacrificed so that they would be able to be freed from the tyranny of uh, Egypt. Well, what's happening here is Jesus is the sacrificial lamb that frees us from the tyranny of sin, and it's his death, his sacrificial death, that brings that salvation to us. And John also points out that salvation, it's based on the death of Jesus, but we receive it by faith. It comes to us, it's, it's, through, it's by grace, but it's through faith. Probably the best known verse in the Bible comes from the Gospel of John, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him <clears throat> should not perish, but have everlasting life. So John is the one that connects faith in Jesus with our salvation. So these are the four Gospels. Again, brief synopses <clears throat> of each of them. And so these four Gospels, by recounting the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, they lay the foundation for the rest of the New Testament writings, as well as the institution of the church, the birth and the development of the new church. And that's what we're going to be looking at in our next session. So thanks for joining me. Again, download the notes if you haven't yet. And I look forward to seeing you again when we get into the book of Acts and the early church in session five. Thanks very much. Hey everyone, it's Kevin McMillan at Mile 2 Church and the overview of the New Testament. Thanks for joining us. This is session four, and I hope you were able to look at the first three sessions. The first two just sort of gave an introduction and a bit of a history leading up to the New Testament and how it came to be. And then last week we started looking at the Gospels and sort of give a general overview of the Gospel. And today what we're going to be doing is looking at each of the Gospels individually to see what makes them unique. Why is Matthew a little bit different than Luke, a little different from Mark, and quite different from John? So let's just start with Matthew. Uh, if you want to download the notes, you can uh, follow along, help you see the major points, and uh, also will help you in the future if you want to come back and review some of this material. You can hang on to it as a PDF. So the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, was written by, surprise, Matthew. And we read about this, we read about Matthew in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, where Jesus finds this tax collector and Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. And the tax collector says, me, Lord? Now, let's remember from our second session that tax collectors were not regarded well by Jews. Tax collectors were Jews, but they were almost considered traitors because they worked for the Romans and the Jews hated the Romans. And so when when Jesus talks about tax collectors, he's often talking in a very derogatory way. So when he called this tax collector, no doubt his disciples went, are you serious? Like, this guy's going to be part of us? But he was. And not only was he part of those 12, he wrote the very first gospel here. And Matthew probably wrote it in the late 50s or early 60s. Now, when you read in chapter 9 about this exchange between Jesus and the tax collector, the tax collector is named Levi. This is not, a, a, again, a contradiction. He had two names. He had the name Matthew and he had the name Levi. Many of the disciples had different names. We think of Peter. He was also called Cephas. He was also called Simon. We think of Mark. Mark is also called John, John Mark. And so these different names can be applied. Paul, Saul. And so, again, it's not a contradiction. It's just two different names. Now, Matthew was written for a largely Jewish audience. We can see this the way he wrote it, and some of the phraseology he uses, some of the references he makes, some of the focuses uh, of his gospel, and some of his explanations make it obvious that, okay, Jewish people are reading this because Matthew is presupposing some understanding of Jewish customs because Matthew also presents Jesus and the New Testament as 
entirely the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He ties it so closely to the Old Testament. He talks about Jesus' relationship with Israel and how Jesus is now the Messiah of Israel. He is the royal king, the, the royal Messiah of Israel, tying these things together. Now you'll find that as you read through the Gospels, you'll see the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, You'll also see the phrase, the kingdom of God. Matthew is the only one who uses the phrase, kingdom of heaven. Now, it's thought that this phrase, kingdom of heaven, originated with the rabbis in rabbinical teaching. And again, if you remember from the first and second sessions, the rabbis came uh, into existence after the Old Testament, before the New Testament. And so, this, this phrase, kingdom of heaven, apparently came uh, to being through the rabbis. And so Matthew uses that phrase because he's talking to a Jewish audience who would have spent their lives listening to rabbis. So he's able to connect with them more that way. Now, in, there are six or seven sections in Matthew that are just the teaching of Jesus. They're just large chunks, chapters, or two or three chapters in a row of simply Jesus' teaching. We call these discourses, where Jesus simply gave the teaching of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so the first one is in chapter 5 to 7, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. So three solid chapters of red letters, if you have a red letter Bible. And then chapters 10, 13, 18, and then 24 and 25 could be considered one, could be considered two when he starts teaching about the last time, the last days, the end of days. So what we see is this regular rhythm of a narrative and a discourse, a narrative and a discourse, a narrative and a discourse. And this is the way Matthew wrote with this rhythm. So he tells the story and then we just pause the story. Well, it's included in the story, but Jesus teaches for quite a while and then we tell some more story and then Jesus does some more teaching. This is the flow that Matthew set up, different than the other Gospels. Now, some of the key themes that we read in Matthew that are very particular to Matthew is the bridging of the Old and New Testaments. Now, I don't want to make it sound that the other three Gospels don't talk about this, because of course they do. We understand that the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but Matthew focuses on this in a greater way and in some ways a different way. This also might be why it's the first Gospel. And by the way, Ever since these four Gospels started being gathered together, which would have happened late in the first century or early in the second century, soon after John's Gospel was written, these four uh, works of Scripture were considered canonical, they were considered part, excuse me, they were considered authoritative and inspired, and they were all put together as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in that order. So Matthew has always been the first book in the New Testament. And it might be placed there simply because it does tie into the Old Testament so much, so significantly. And if you look at the first chapter of Matthew, what do you see? A genealogy, a long genealogy. This would be perfect to connect with Jewish people because in the Old Testament, gene genealogies are common. Now, this wasn't simply just to take up space or to tell some dry history, but it's to put people in the context of their ancestors, the context of their faith. So it was very important for them. You know, what family do you come from? Because families were very, very important to them. So Matthew starts with a genealogy. In this way, he's able to connect very well with a Jewish audience. It just helps provide continuity from the Old Testament and sort of cohesion from the Old Testament as well. So bridging the Old and New Testaments is a major theme in Matthew. Another theme is the church. It's first mentioned. Uh, Jesus mentions the church in Matthew, and Jesus makes it clear, I am building my church and I will be sustaining my church. Matthew shows that it includes all Israel and all the Gentiles together in one. If you think of the Great Commission, that is at the last, in the very, very end of the Gospel of Matthew, the last chapter, he says, go into all the world and preach the Gospel. And as we'll see in a couple of sessions, it took them a little while to catch on that that was really what they were supposed to do. But it was to include not just the Jewish nation, but it was also to include everyone. Another key theme in Matthew is discipleship. 
because we see these great chunks of teaching, uh, like the Sermon on the Mount and then the, the other four or five chunks of teaching, these discourses really provide a great manual for Christian living, if you just want to call it that. And really it's the most comprehensive of Jesus' teaching of all the Gospels. So it's, a, it's an excellent book to read in terms of understanding discipleship. So let's look at the Gospel of Mark. This was probably the first Gospel uh, ever written, probably written around 55 AD, somewhere around there, and it was written by John Mark. You can read about him in a few places. One, we see him in Acts chapter 12, uh, where he, start, he joins the disciples and he travels with Paul for a little while, and then he doesn't travel with Paul for a little while, and then we read later on in Timothy where Paul says, please contact John Mark, I'd, I'd like to see him again. So he was very much involved in uh, the early church and in the spread of the gospel through the Gentile world. Uh, but this gospel was actually based probably largely on Peter's memories, on Peter's understanding. Again, uh, we're taking for granted that you understand we see these gospels as inspired by the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit works through human vessels. And so their memories, their style, their vocabulary, the way they see things, their viewpoint is going to be reflected in the gospels as well. So this was based, the gospel of, of Mark is likely based on Peter's memories because Mark was actually an assistant to Peter for several years when they both lived in Rome. So it's interesting where Matthew was one of the disciples and he was an eyewitness to Jesus and his whole ministry, Mark was not. It's possible Mark was connected, but we don't know that for sure. We know he was connected to the spread of the gospel later on, but he wasn't one of the disciples. So he was relying on Peter's memories. And so this gospel actually focuses a little bit more on the events uh, that Peter participates in in the story of Jesus. But what's really interesting is it actually focuses more on the weaknesses of Peter and the words that he used and the actions that he did and the attitudes that he had. So this shows Peter's humility. You would think if he wanted to write more about himself, he'd try to show up, you know, he was a great disciple and he did this and he did this. He ended up saying, yeah, I said this and I shouldn't have and I did that. No, isn't it terrible that I did that? And I denied him three times. So Peter was willing to show, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not Mr. Super Apostle here. And you read that in a greater way in Mark, really, than in the other ones. Now, Mark was written for a largely Gentile audience. Where Matthew wrote for the Jewish audience, Mark wrote for the Gentile audience. This makes sense because he and Peter lived in Rome, and they were surrounded by Gentiles. And we can see this in that Mark explained Jewish traditions much more than Matthew did. Matthew just would have said, this is what happened, whereas Mark said, this is what happened and this is why it happened. Here's an example. In Matthew 15, the very beginning, chapter, or chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread? That's what Matthew said. Matthew knew that the Jewish audience would understand why the Pharisees would say that. Mark, on the other hand, wanted to explain why did the Pharisees say that? That might not make sense. Didn't have to do with whether their hands were clean. It had nothing to do with that. This is what Mark wrote. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and the, of the Jews and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the, to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things that they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders and eat with unwashed hands? Okay, way bigger explanation. Even though Mark is a shorter book, he goes to the trouble of explaining these tra Jewish traditions so that the Gentile audience would get it. Now, as I mentioned, it's a short book. It's also a very fast-paced book. The word immediately, or something along those lines, right away, occurs over 40 times 
in 16 chapters. And so it just goes from one scene to another scene to another scene to another scene. It's not even necessarily a lot of continuity between scenes. Immediately this happened, and then immediately this happened, and this happened, and then immediately this happened. As you read it, sometime I encourage you to read through the entire Gospel in one sitting, because what you see is it just goes and goes and goes and goes. He tells a lot in a short period of time. Now, Jesus' teaching here is mixed in with the narrative. There are two sections where he teaches quite a bit, two discourses, whereas in Matthew there are, what, four or five or six discourses. Here there are two smaller ones, but his teaching is also interspersed within the narrative. So it presents a different flow of Jesus' ministry at the time. Now, some of the key themes that we read in the Gospel of Mark is discipleship, similar to Matthew little bit of a different focus. Uh, Mark focuses on our relationship with Jesus Christ, and Mark also focuses on the fact that discipleship involves denying ourselves and dying to ourselves. This, this theme comes back over and over and over again in Mark, and that's a crucial part of discipleship. Another theme that we see in Mark is that he is correcting many of the messianic expectations and understandings. You'll remember from our earlier sessions that we said the Jews were looking for a Messiah. They they were waiting for a Messiah, but many of them were waiting for a political, military Messiah, leader. And Mark is very clear to explain, I mean, through Jesus' teaching, that is not who he is. He is not that person, and that person is not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. So Mark is very clear about that. Mark is also very clear that Jesus is a man and the Son of God, combining these two identities in one person, God in human form. And this is a very important theological concept that comes later, actually, in the history of the church. So those are some of the things that Mark focuses on. Let's look at the Gospel of Luke now. Here again, uh, it's not named as Luke, but we can understand both from some of the things we read in the text, some of the things that we read in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, it makes it clear that it's Luke, and again, the early church all said, Luke is the guy who wrote this. We know him. We, he, he gave us this work. We get it. Now, like Mark, he was not an eyewitness. He was not one of the disciples. He was not even there, by the sound of it, uh, during Jesus' ministry at all. As a matter of fact, he's not Jewish. He's the only author of the New Testament that was not Jewish. And so he had to gather his information. He had to talk to people to get his information. He couldn't write it from his first-hand experience. But he had lots of experience with the gospel because he traveled with the Apostle Paul all the way through, not all the way through the book of Acts, but often in the book of Acts, you'll see talking, Paul, we and Paul went here. And so he's including himself in these missionary voyages. So he's very involved in the spread of the gospel and the early church. And Paul also refers to him in some of his other letters and lets us know that Luke was a physician. Dr. Luke is the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts. Probably he wrote around 62 AD or so. We, we think he didn't write it before Paul's death. Paul probably died around 64 AD, 63-64. But when Luke wrote the book of Acts, it ends quite positively with Paul preaching in Rome. He was under house arrest, but Paul was still able to preach and see people, uh, and he was very active in ministry. If Luke knew at that point that Paul had died, probably he would have written it into the book of Acts but it's not there. So the book of Acts and therefore the Gospel of Luke were likely written in the early 60s, maybe late 50s, but early 60s. Now, it's a, uh, I should also say it was written for a specific person. Uh, It was written for a man named Theophilus, and we don't know who Theophilus was. Luke only names him, names him in Luke and names him in Acts, but he doesn't give any explanation as to who he is. But it was probably a man of wealth, of stature, some uh, political position perhaps, uh, who had commissioned Luke to write this because he wanted to know the truth of the gospel. And so Luke is very careful about finding all the evidence and writing what he knew to be true. And so it also implies a Gentile audience, just like Mark, because Theophilus obviously doesn't sound like a Jewish name, it sounds like a Greek name. So the Gospel of Mark is a mix of teaching, miracles, 
and parables. And in fact, the Gospel of Luke has more parables than any of the other Gospels put into it. And so Jesus does most of his teaching in Luke through parables. And unlike Matthew, and more similar to Mark, Jesus' teaching is just interspersed throughout the story. So it's more like one long narrative where Jesus takes time to teach here, and then he does something, and then he teaches here. So we don't see these two or three chapter chunks of teaching in the Gospel of Mark that we do in the Gospel of Matthew. So just a bit of a different flow to it. Some of the key themes we read in Matthew are about God's sovereignty over history to arrange things so that when Jesus came to the earth, it was exactly in the right place at the right time with the right people. Luke gives a great deal of introduction before Jesus is born and quite a detailed introduction of how things were all set up so that he came again in the right place at exactly the right time. Luke also talks a lot about the coming of the Holy Spirit. We'll see this in John as well, but Luke focuses on the Holy Spirit more than Mark, more than Matthew as well. Luke talks a great deal about prayer. Again, this is, it's not that the others don't talk about these things, but Luke emphasizes them a little bit more. And one thing you see over and over again in the Gospel of Luke is the danger of riches. He wasn't saying that riches of themselves are bad or you should not have them. He just said, he just makes it clear they bring with them great danger. And we read that also as well through the uh, letters of Paul as well. So those are some of the the key themes that we read about in Luke. So looking at the last gospel, the gospel of John, this is the different one. The first three are the synoptic gospels. Now John is just a little bit different. This was written by John, the apostle, one of the 12, one of the sons of thunder, as Jesus called them. And this is the John who also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Revelation. In, in those books, he is named, but in this book he is not named, although, again, church tradition ascribes this to him. And again, people would have known him. He lived a long time. Uh, he probably would have been in his late 80s or 90s when he wrote this. It was written, as I mentioned, later in the first century, probably in the 90s, probably around 95 AD. One of the reasons we can uh, uh, understand this is simply something very simple, is John calls what the other disciples call the Sea of Galilee. You know, you, you hear about Jesus in Galilee, this is where he was born, and there was the Sea of Galilee and the fishermen and everything like that. The other disciples called it the Sea of Galilee. The other Gospels call it the Sea of Galilee, whereas John calls it the Sea of Tiberias, because that area was known as Tiberias, named after the leader, Tiberias. But this only happened, this, the, the, this body of water was only called the Sea of Tiberias late in the first century. It was not called that earlier. And so the fact that John called it that is pretty good proof that this would have been later, written quite a bit later than the other Gospels. Probably written from Ephesus, that's where John spent a good deal of his time, and the audience that he wrote to was both Jew and Gentile. And like Luke and, uh, excuse me, like Mark, he explains some of the Jewish traditions because he knows he's talking to, uh, to Gentiles who may not understand Hebrew words or Hebrew traditions, so he, he goes, like Mark, into some detail in explaining those. Now, John has this unique opening very different than the other Gospels, quite beautiful, uh, sort of mystical in its sounding. If you read it, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know, the other Gospels started with Mary and Joseph, or Elizabeth and Zechariah, or Mark just starts with, this is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus when he's 27 years old. John goes right back to the beginning of everything. And so he gives us this beautiful, huge picture of the appearance of Jesus in the world when he came. Um, the characteristics, we mentioned that Mark is a little, uh, John is different than the other Gospels. Here, here are some of the things that are different. John focuses a great deal on Jesus being sent by God and working with him. In the Gospel of John, over and over and over again, Jesus said, I'm not here to do my will. I only do what I see the Father do. I only say the things I hear the Father say. I'm only here to do his will. It is not me. It is God working through me. This is such a prevalent theme in Mark. It's in the other Gospels, but excuse me, John, not Mark, Mark, John. It's a prevalent, prevalent theme in this gospel. 
John interestingly speaks very little of the kingdom, either of heaven or of God, just a different viewpoint. And as I mentioned earlier, there are actually no parables in this gospel, quite a difference from the other gospels because Jesus did a good deal of his teaching in parables in all three of the other gospels. And John also speaks about eternal life a great deal. Again, it's mentioned in the other Gospels. John focuses on it more. And John is not simply referring to the amount of time, if you can call eternity time. He's also focusing on the quality of life, that this is a connection with God. This is in the presence of God. So he, John gives us this picture of eternal life, this beautiful state that we are all going to be in forever. Some of the key themes of John is Jesus is God. As I've quoted a couple of times already, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So John explicitly states, Jesus is God. Of course, another theme you can probably identify in the Gospel of John in most of his writing is love. The word love, the Greek word agape, agapeo, either the verb or the noun, show up in the Gospel of John more almost twice as much as the other three Gospels put together. So it's not obviously that the other Gospels don't think love is an important theme, it's just John focused on it so much more than the others. Jesus presents himself, or John presents Jesus as I am. And the Gospel of John is filled with these I am statements that Jesus made. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am the way. Uh, he said, before Abraham was, I am. All of these show up in the Gospel of John. So this helps just solidify this identity as Jesus, of Jesus as God. Uh, John also shows us, makes it clear that Jesus' death is the basis for our salvation. In John chapter 1, verse 29, he is called the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A Jewish audience, <clears throat> excuse me, would understand that right away, referring to the Passover when the Lamb was sacrificed so that they would be able to be freed from the tyranny of uh, Egypt. Well, what's happening here is Jesus is the sacrificial lamb that frees us from the tyranny of sin, and it's his death, his sacrificial death, that brings that salvation to us. And John also points out that salvation, it's based on the death of Jesus, but we receive it by faith. It comes to us, it's, it's, through, it's by grace, but it's through faith. Probably the best known verse in the Bible comes from the Gospel of John, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him <clears throat> should not perish, but have everlasting life. So John is the one that connects faith in Jesus with our salvation. So these are the four Gospels. Again, brief synopses <clears throat> of each of them. And so these four Gospels, by recounting the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, they lay the foundation for the rest of the New Testament writings, as well as the institution of the church, the birth and the development of the new church. And that's what we're going to be looking at in our next session. So thanks for joining me. Again, download the notes if you haven't yet. And I look forward to seeing you again when we get into the book of Acts and the early church in session five. Thanks very much.